Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you, and enjoy. When Father Ryan Matt asked me to give a talk, I said, does it have to be something super controversial? Because I'm tired of giving controversial talks. It's part of my, uh, as, as uh, the moral theologian of the diocese, I tend to be thrown in the deep end when it comes to all the thorny questions. And so I kind of, we talked about a topic and as I was preparing it over the last couple weeks, um, I realized, yeah, I guess I'm back into a controversial topic. I thought maybe it wouldn't be, but it won't be the usual. So bear with me. I just want to begin by, I told Father Ryan, I was thinking of like a Chautauqua lecture series. You know, Lake Chautauqua has these lecture series. That's how I was envisioning here at St. Basil's. Like, so not like a catechetical talk per se, but one that's more fun that kind of deals with culture, maybe a little controversial, but will raise some, uh, I think, very important questions for us as disciples and Christians. Realize that I'm super, this is going to be a super wide uh, topic talk. I can't get into all the issues I talk about. I could probably divide this into a whole course at seminary. In fact, I sort of did this semester. I taught an independent study sort of on this topic. And it was actually like nine classes, two hours each. You're going to get like about 40 minutes right now. So, so bear with me. So, and so uh, what we're going to talk about is the last acceptable prejudice, Christianity. I want to talk a little bit about victimization in our culture. Talk a little bit about cancel or woke culture. And we can get into the specifics of those definitions later. But maybe just us as disciples of the world how we are dealing with all the different craziness that's going around us and the partisanship and uh, a lot of hatred that surrounds not just all of us, but also in particular Christians. So I want to preface this by saying um, some of these ideas are a lot, I want to say, come from the gospel primarily, but through a lens of a, a writer, I did my, some doctor, my doctoral work in, in Rome. His name is René Girard. Uh, with Girard, just to let you know, Bishop Barron, said in an interview about five years ago that he will be a church father of the future. I don't know if I agree with that. But anyway, Bishop Barron gives him such high accolades, you know, that he's an interesting thinker. But really what he would say was, this is more gospel. It's not any sort of theory. It's all about us using the gospel to interpret our experience in our world today. All right, so are we ready to go? All right. You know, I want to talk about Christianity's last prejudice I think it was about 10 years ago, in the LA Times, there was an op-ed that had this title, So Many Christians, So Few Lions. What's the context? The Colosseum, us being slaughtered by lions, so many of us, and so few lions. That headline got a pass. There was no problems with the LA Times saying so many Christians, so few lions. Now, I want to just propose this. If the LA Times had said this, so many Jews, not enough gas chambers, what would be the reaction? All of us? We would cringe, right? Rightly so? Because it's a disturbing concept that we'd actually be for the persecution and killing of people because of their religious faith. But when it came to Christians, there was no problem. In fact, you can find 
actually uh, bumper stickers that have that line by atheists. A real hatred towards it. Moving towards more persecution, even in this modern age, and I, I mentioned the cancel culture. So the woke culture that kind of has evolved from critical race theory to actually any sort of ideology. And if you don't agree with that ideology, then we cancel you, we reject you. We see this even um, present in our own faith. For instance, St. Junipero Serra, the great evangelizer of California. Why California? They're all named after saints, right? All those cities. He's a saint buried in Carmel at San Carlos Borromeo Mission. All those statues being ripped down or vandalized. Christopher Columbus statues, even now Abraham Lincoln. Again, the fact that there many are being, as we call, canceled in our world today because of our belief, but also because of the link to Christianity. How would you make sense of this? Again, an accusation that really we are a religion at guilt, responsible for the violence in the world. We're not the solution. We are a problem. How do we understand the fact that all of a sudden now we've found ourselves in a situation where we're now slowly being persecuted? All right, so I want to talk about this today in light of victimization and again in terms of cancel culture. Where I'd like to begin, it's a strange place to begin, is talk, and this first part is going to be super brief. Bear with me, okay? I want to begin like, how do we understand victimization, violence? How can we interpret this? And I want to go all the way back, way back, in terms of us as humans in general, even before Christianity. I'm going to talk about this a little bit. I'm going to talk about, about desire a little bit, all right? I have to be super brief, all right? But how do we understand violence and victims? It all comes down to this, that Aristotle, a great philosopher, said that we as humans are the most imitative creatures. That means of all animals, we imitate each other more than any other animal imitates their own. All right, so St. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian, agreed with that. He said that we tend to imitate. But part of our imitation, right, is actually in a deeper way also imitating each other's desires. That oftentimes when we imitate each other, it's not just imitating what you do, but what is their desire? Right, what is their desire? For instance, when I grew up, when it came to tennis shoes, it wasn't LeBron James, it was Michael Jordan. I want to be like Mike. You want to buy what? Nike shoes. Well, was there a value in the Nike shoes? Why do you think all the kids wanted Nike shoes? Was it because of Nike? No, it was because of who? Michael Jordan. You want to be like Mike, right? So we desire based upon another's desire, upon the other. The greatest example I can give you is this. I'm an uncle of 13 nieces and nephews. Two of my nephews, I think they think it's Lent. They actually came here to the talk tonight. I will not point them out. God bless them. You get a bunch, you get, let's say you get two kids. My youngest nephews are Luke and Jude. Put Luke and Jude, first and second grade, in a room full of toys. And Jude picks one of a hundred toys, and he's holding it. Of all the toys that his brother Luke wants, which one is it? All right. So it doesn't matter how stupid the toy is. There are hundreds of awesome toys in this room. But little Luke wants what toy? The one that his brother has. 
So in other words, Jude, Luke's desire is spurred on by what? His brothers. He desires as his brother desires. Let's look at Genesis real quick. We see Eve approach the tree, and we see her kind of approach it nonchalantly, this tree of good and evil. It's full of fruit. Does she look at the fruit and say, I want that? No. But who shows up on the scene? The serpent. And it's because of the serpent that Scripture tells us what? That because of the serpent, she all of a sudden looked at the fruit and she saw it as pleasing. In other words, she's desiring as the serpent desired. All right? So our imitating each other includes our desires. Well, what's the problem? The problem is, is that when we begin desiring each other's desires, what can often happen is rivalry. Jude and Luke in a room. <laughs> Hundreds of toys. Jude's holding one. Luke wants what? What happens? Big fight, right? Uncle Joe has to step in and break the fight apart. All right. I'm being very simplistic here. But what it's pointing to is that we as humans offer, I mean, often in terms of our own desires, are playing off each other. And that desire can become rivalrous. Now, if we like to imitate, what is the problem with this rivalry? Well, it can end up on a societal level, entering in a complete mob violence. It can lead to societal collapse. What is a way in which we as humans, from the beginning, and this is, this is work of the here, have overcome this type of violence? Is if all of us together, imitating our own desires, can blame one, all of us against one, and we can place all our anger and frustration on that one, it's a way of unifying all of us together and again, once again, we go from a rivalry and fighting and violence to what? Peace. We have a modern term for this. What's it called? It's called scapegoating. The fact remains that nothing can unite a crowd that's at odds with each other more than when all of a sudden there's one that we can blame for our problems. We've been doing this from the beginning of time. We have been organizing ourselves as humans. This is the argument that this thinker says from the beginning of time. What we know about religion from the very beginning of humanity is that it's always associated with human sacrifice, always associated with finding a victim and killing that victim. It doesn't matter. And we find this in our myths, the stories that different religions and cultures have built about their own identity. We see it even now in temples. Go down to the Aztec temples in Mexico, the Mayan temples. Listen to the reports of Cook when he went to the South Pacific. We see present, even up to the 18th century, ways in which we deal with our violence by turning against a few. All right? It unites us. It overcomes us. Religion, from an archaic perspective, always was related to a sense of Violence, sacred violence. God was always one who was against the victim. God was the one who was the one that mandated that we sacrifice this person in order to what? To please him. So even in our own country, the altars by which hearts were ripped out was a religious act. It united a community against its own violence of rivalry. 
sacrifice and violence and religion all became one in our long history, all right? We need victims. This is the story of our past. We need them. It unites us. It helps us overcome the rivalry that develops by our desire. Are you with me so far? All right, here we go. Okay, now, if this is all against one, and by the way, we see it in bullying, right? We can see this even now today, right? What's the best stance when you see, I mean, on the field, in the playground, basically, if you're being bullied, right, it's best to find someone else who can be bullied better, right? We see that even in the playground. We see this in many examples of our world today. But again, what is so unique about Christianity? Well, Christianity, and in fact, all of our religion, is something that turns this mechanism upside down. Whereas ancient culture really believed that victims were guilty in their myths, and I could go through many myths with you. We can go talk about Oedipus. We can talk about Dionysius. I'm not going to do it to you tonight, all right? But you find in ancient myths stories of what? We have those that are on the fringe who are guilty of a crime, and they end up getting killed by a collective murder, or they're, ex- they're kicked out of their cities like Oedipus was. But we see in these victims that indeed God desires that victim be castigated or killed, and that act unites a community. We see in Christianity an odd subversion of this. God does not take the side of the victimizers. Our God from the get-go takes the side of the victim. We see, for instance, the foundation of the first human culture after Adam and Eve. What's that culture based on? A murder of who? Abel getting killed by Cain. By the way, what's involved with that murder? Rivalry. You got that? Envy. Cain's envious at Abel. Kills him because of it. What does God say? He wants nothing to do with the violence of Cain. Nothing to do with it. We see from that moment onward that the God of the Old Testament, our God and Father, always was slowly teaching his people, pulling himself away from an idea that God is pro-violence, that God is with the victimizers. And God slowly begins to be associated with what? The victim. All right? We see this. We see this even in Abraham's text, which is remarkable. Abraham's text deals with what? Human sacrifice. Weird, isn't it? But what do we see there? We see God, it's that culture by which Abraham lived, the Canaanite culture, they killed their, their firstborn children. Abraham was doing what the culture told him he should do. But instead, what we see is he goes up on the mountain, and what does God say? Don't touch the boy, right? Now, what is it, what's substituted for human sacrifice there? What does God substitute with? So we're moving in the right direction, right? Better to kill the ram than a human, a boy, right? But what do we see as we see later on the prophets? God doesn't even want their bloody sacrifice. I want a contrite spirit, a humble heart is what I desire. He doesn't even want the blood of the animals. We see slowly a division between violence and God, all right? We finally get to the high point of revelation, which is Jesus. 
Jesus himself, who doesn't take the side of the victimizers, but himself becomes a victim of our violence. And what's remarkable is what is the passion? We go to Palm Sunday, we go to Good Friday, we read. What's our role in the passion? What do we say? Our main, our main title, you know, when we're we, crucified. So what do we see here? An act of collective violence. We are all guilty. What are we screaming for? The death of Jesus. Why? Because Caiaphas says better that what? One man die than an entire nation. Got this? Better that we scapegoat and victimize this Jesus so that we're united and don't get destroyed. Jesus becomes a victim. All right? He becomes, again, victim to the crowd, to all of us, to our cries of crucify him. Jesus is not simply a scapegoat. What is Jesus? He is the Lamb of God, an innocent one, pure. He's not guilty of crimes. In myths, those that are killed are always guilty somehow of what they did. Jesus is innocent. But nonetheless, he dies at the hands of an angry mob. Do you see how it patterns how myths have always existed? But it turns it upside down. You know, when it comes to woke culture, now I'm woke, right? Now I'm aware of injustice. I want to have this, this image, which I think is awesome in the Gospels. Peter, who chooses, after Jesus is arrested, does he choose to stand with the innocent victim, or does he choose to stand with the victimizers? He stands with the victimizers. He's at, again, that fire. He denies, he even knows Jesus, right? And he stands with the victimizers, not with the innocent victim. But all of a sudden, what happens in that moment? It's awesome. There's a cock that crows. It's almost like what? Morning is about to break. The darkness of ignorance, this power that had even Peter under its force breaks all of a sudden. That's being woke. I am victimizing one who is innocent. Peter realizes he heard that cock crow, all right? This is the power of the cross. This is the power of what was unleashed by Jesus in his death and resurrection, all right? There's so much more I can say about it, but again, this is an ignorance that we're guilty has been shattered. And the other important part, which is going to lead to our next section, is if Jesus is the innocent victim, we have to be disposed towards others who are victims. So in Matthew 25, the great passage by which it's the sheep and the goats, we see Jesus dividing, the, the, again, division of the sheep and goats. He turns to those on the right and say, Come, you blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. In prison, you visited me sick. You cared for me. All those things are what? Those who are on the fringe. Those who are victims. Jesus invites his disciples to see in those who are marginalized victims, to care for those in need, all right? All right, let's go to the next section. What happened from that moment on? There's a lot written about the influence of the gospel in the world, but what we know remarkably is that the sac human sacrifice, which dominated for thousands of years, crumbled as Christianity spread. Myths that would tend to focus on those on the margins, right? 
began to dissipate. Myths were no longer written. We see a power emerging in this world by which there is more and more care for those that are not part of my tribe, those that I could normally victimize. Now I can love and respect, I'm called to as a Christian. It's in within medieval Europe that the emergence of the first hospitals for all people, not just for my tribe, but for all people exist. The Hotel de Dieu, the Hotel of God, the place of God, that Christians didn't care about what religion you were. They didn't care about what ethnic tribe you came from, what nation. The fact that you, again, were in the image and likeness of God, that you were human, you had worth, a sense of our propensity to victimize and to be careful from that. From that, Christianity changed the world and Western society. And I can talk a lot about that, but we see this even now. Like, I, I use this example. It's true. So, okay, so don't get upset at me. When you have a major world disaster, who steps in to provide resources to help those, who are, even if it's not your own country? Any guesses? What nations? It tends to be the rich nations, but you also happen to be what? Christian, Christian nations. I'm, okay, here we go. I'm, I'm going to enter in the PGA. I'm not going to enter in the PGA debates here. <laughs> Does Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabia, who has more money than us, come to the aid of the tsunami in, in Asia? It's a Christian sense, do you see? of taking care of any person who's in need because that's where Jesus is. Jesus is present in those who are vulnerable and the victim. All right. Again, the development of human rights, where did that spring from? Christian soil. We forget this, right? It sprung from Christian soil. Respecting others from Christian soil. All right. This is part of our patrimony, the gift that we gave the world. This is Christianity, all right? But what happened? Where are we are now? Well, this is what's strange. As we enter the modern period, more and more, we see Christianity as being rejected. That Christianity is really not unique. It's like one myth among many, which is, is absolutely false. Christianity is actually the opposite of a mythic view of the world that wants to victimize others to unite. We're different. Christ is the innocent victim, and we're called to recognize victims and others. But now, all of a sudden, the tables have been turned against us. And this is the great irony of our talk tonight, all right? The great irony. That the very source of our intuition as humans, of our tendency and propensity to victimize, that came from Christianity. Now, our world is rejecting Christianity, the very source of that intuition. We now have become now seen ourselves as what? The, the, the prejudice of, except, I mean, basically the last acceptable prejudice. That we have become in an odd way, ironic way, now the focus of such animosity, such anger. I want to say what? Of a new victimization. Now in our culture, what do we see? In order to get the upper hand, what do you need to do? You need to be a victim and you need to what? Victimize others. Do you see this? You claim a victim status in order to what? 
to be able to victimize others and essentially, I'm mean, using the term cancel, but essentially to, exp- to, to remove them from the public sphere, to silence their voice. There's no bloody sacrifice going on right now, but there is a type of sacrifice in terms of what we see in our culture that's part of the shaming, that's part of the cancel, that's part of the rejection. And more and more what we see today is not just valid reasons to critique terrible injustice, but even reasons that are not valid, namely attacking the very source of the intuition of the need not to victimize. This is what we're in today, and this is the great irony. Um, We see a situation where what's more Christian? It's the secular culture claims to be more Christian than us. We see a situation where there's an inability to see how we're at all unique, that we've contributed to this insight in our world. These are the major problems that we see. And what's the uh, consequences? And I wrote this down. I know, Father Ryan, it's 7 o'clock already, so I know I'm, I'm trying to be careful. He's almost holding his sign. He's pacing back there. He's pounding his fist. What's going on? Am I, am I victimizing Father Ryan? We're using victim status to victimize others. We see this. It happens all the time. This is the engine of something that pretends to be Christian, and it's not. It's not. We don't, like I said, we don't sacrifice like we used to, but now we've returned to the idea, what's going to unite us? Let's go back to victimizing, but in odd sense using this language, all right? Public shaming is a new weapon of victimization. Uh, I uh, actually gave an address at Tri-C, their honors program, Gosh, years ago, I forgot when it was, but a book by John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And it's a remarkable book because a New York Times bestseller, the author came. But just the stories of on social media, how people even innocently saying things are completely obliterated in terms of the, uh, of the public, in terms of social media. They lose their jobs. Uh, they lose th- th- their reputations simply because of the viciousness of public shaming. And those that are older and don't realize what social media can do, those that are younger can understand that, right? The dangers that exist in terms of public shaming. Um, And this is a big one for me. There is no mercy. There is no forgiveness with our culture. You know, you can do something wrong and it doesn't matter. When you are ripped apart, there is such a victimization where there, and this is where Christianity is different. What does Christianity say? We are all guilty. Every one of us goes to Palm Sunday and what do we say? Crucify him. But now, now, those that claim an upper hand as being victims can victimize without any problem, without being held back whatsoever. To the point where there is no mercy, there's no forgiveness, there's a silence. So these are the problems that we see the situation now. Why did I begin this talk... (coughs) I'm going to put these right by the egg rolls and the sandwiches. All right. <laughs> I began my talk by talking about desire and, 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 and rivalry and violence and how we constitute ourselves over and against each other. Then I went into how Christianity subverts this and re- reveals to us the true nature of our tendency to victimize. And now what is the irony? Even though this Christianity has spread throughout the world, now this, now this intuition is turned against us. 
the very source. What's the problem? We are back in a position of victimizing. We are back in a situation by which we victimize and we claim ourselves as victims. So where do we go from here as I kind of wrap up? Um, Christianity, I think, will be, continue to be, become the scapegoat of last resort. I think that we're going to see more and more our Christianity um, being held against us. There are situations where rightly so, rightly so, injustices are being pointed out. That's fine. Whenever there's truth, whenever we see true situations where in our past, yes, we've been victim, we've been victimizers. Well, of course we repent. But the reality is, is that it's gone even more crazy. It's uh, G.K. Chesterton who said that our world is full of old, uh, full of old Christian virtues gone wild. What it means is things like loving each other and kindness now have become a tolerance that is intolerant to those that don't believe as I believe. That certain things that we hold as true and right and beautiful are now being thrown back against us, you know. And there's secular reasons. I told Father Wright I would not get too um, controversial, but I want to use one example of getting woke and cancel culture is J.K. Rowling. Again, I'm not going to get into controversy here because I'm sick of talking about sexual topics. I'm always the talk. I'm always the, the um, that's always the hat I wear. Can you talk about this in you know, this hot button issue? So I'm happy not to do it. And I'm about to do it right now. <laughs> so J.K. Rowling, who is, I mean, she, she, this is not inspired by a strong Catholic faith, she's not even Catholic, simply disagreed with some of the transgender ideology. And she said, no, uh, you can't simply choose to be a woman. There's something biological about being a woman. I'm just kind of summarizing what she said. Totally canceled. Now, Father Ryan said there was some redemption, but still canceled by the media. They had a big um, reunion of all the Harry Potter actors and actresses. They wrote her and said, don't come. But no, what, no, what was she stating? Now, what was her only point? It was just a simple point that being a woman is something that's beautiful and it's a givenness by our biology. That's a position that you can hold, I think, and not be ripped apart. But what do we see here in our culture? No, 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 no. You're not allowed to say that. You're victimizing me. You're canceled. You're silent. You're not welcome back. And the oddity is, of course, all those kids made billions of dollars for being characters in the books that she wrote. All right. I'm using a very secular example. I could give you a lot of Catholic Christian examples. But we're going to see this more and more. How, again, I look at, for instance, Junipero Serra. I mean, is there, can be, there be a critique? Of missionaries, <coughs> yeah, there can be. There are some that were subjugated, the diseases that were spread. I understand. Again, forgiveness and mercy is part of our language, our reality. But at the same time, the goodness of what those missionaries did, in number one, stopping even human sacrifice. Let's, let's begin there. Our Lady Guadalupe, the Aztecs. We could tell stories all night of what Christianity did to uplift the dignity, but to simply be canceled, let's rip this statue down. Again, this is the silencing that is occurring in a new victimization. All right, we need to continue to live the truth in love. That's the first thing. To stand strong in what we believe, but to love. That's always our calling as disciples. Number two, we need the witness and support of the martyrs. 
Um, again, they were ones that were persecuted. They were victims at the hands of angry mobs. Look at Stephen's you know, uh, own martyrdom, our first martyr, that we need to take an example from that. And I think we always need to keep in mind also the importance of forgiveness and love. We live in an age where you make a mistake, you're canceled, you're over. We have a great witness to our world that there's such thing as redemption. There's such a thing as forgiveness and love. And this is part of the heart, well, the heart of Christianity, but something that the world desperately needs. And lastly, and I don't want to get depressed, um, there's... Um, Jesus predicted at the end that there'd be a lot of violence, a lot of partisanship. Parents would turn against children, children against parents. Jesus says, be at peace. I'm with you, right? What we see at the end of time, by the way, if you look at the, if you look at the apocalyptic text of the gospel, I want to point something out. God is not a God of violence. Take a look at those passages. It's almost as if God is stepping back. And where does the violence originate? in human communities. Read the apocalyptic text of Matthew and the synoptics. You will not see an anger God throwing lightning bolts. You will see human communities in rivalry and complete disintegration, all right? Because of course, when we don't have scapegoats, there's no way to unite ourselves. Christ has shown us that we can no longer sacrifice the innocent, right? So what we're gonna see here is Jesus' prediction that it doesn't get any better. And guess what? We don't win through our arguments. We win through our love, our perseverance, that there will be a new Jerusalem. There will be, again, a victory. But that victory really comes from only God and God alone returning to judge the living and the dead. That's actually what I quote in the last uh, uh, paragraph from the Catechism. Again, this sense of when we see violence, it's part of our tradition, Jesus predicted this, but for to have heart and strength, to cling to the martyrs, to continue to live the truth and love. And again, know that there is hope. Jesus is always with us. But again, I hope I gave you a different lens to see the crises that we're facing today. That was my only job today, to kind of throw out some ideas where you can see in a different way, in a different lens, and to interpret the world as it is today. Amen? Amen. All right. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.